Welcome to this episode of the Atlanta Career Journey Podcast. Today's guest is Paulette Corbin, who is Executive Director at Chapter 2. She first got her start at Delta Airlines and worked her way up from in-flight to reservation sales, to ultimately starting up Delta Express, which is what they called the airline within an airline. I do remember when that happened. That was pretty amazing. She's demonstrated success with embracing change and pivoted to executive coaching. I highly respect her both personally and professionally, and I'm happy to be talking with her today. So, Paulette, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Paul. Boy, I hope I can live up to all that. <laughs> oh, you already have. I mean, it's just your career has been fascinating, um, you know, and, and I always appreciate, you know, obviously former Delta folks and, and yes. I'm always curious to, to hear um, their journey within the company as well as what they've done since then. So, um, so yeah, let's, let's maybe start with the beginning. So a um, little bit about your background, maybe where you were uh, born or raised, uh, a little bit about family, school, and then the first job you had. Absolutely, Paul. First, let me say thank you for doing this, and um, I really appreciate you. You are one of my favorite people in the whole world, and always have been. Oh, you're too nice. Thank you so much. That means so, a lot. Um, I, w- I was a Midwest kid, so I was born and raised in Ohio, Illinois, and Pennsylvania, and it's, that sounds weird to say that, but um, my, my father was a doctor, and he was a very unique character, so um, when we got to the age of consciousness, my brother and sister and me, he decided he wanted to go into an 8 to 5 job and not be on call all the time since yep. we barely knew him. So um, that's why we moved around a lot when I was growing up. So he kept trying to find the director of medical services at some big company that, that he could be happy with and still earn the money he wanted. Um, and it was, it was interesting what that taught me because even though those were all Midwest states, they were all different. And I had to... I had to rebuild my friendships again mm-hmm. each time we moved. Um, so that, that was an important skill at the time. I didn't like it, right? Yeah. <laughs> a kid likes that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as I look back now, it was an important skill because I had to figure, figure out ways to make friends again. Um, yeah, move from the new kid to, hey, somebody right. who's got a, a network and a friendship group and, and fitting in a little bit, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Exactly. And so when I graduated from high school, I moved to, um, I decided I wanted a different experience. Now, there's going to be themes here about experiences. Yep. So um, I went to an all-girls school in Virginia, another big change from what I had grown up with. The culture was different. Uh, The wordings of things were different. Things were called different names. Um, And it was fascinating because most of the women there were Southern and had a whole different experience growing up than I did. Yeah. Uh, one of the cool things I did there was uh, I worked with uh, the leading authority on stuttering at the time uh, in a lab situation where I actually had patients and we were teaching people about how to improve their stuttering. And um, big lesson in that, what I saw was as some of these women would improve and get better in, their, in, in not stuttering and their confidence would improve, and then sometimes their families wouldn't accept that. Really? So would regress back to stuttering. Because wow. What was comfortable. Um, so that was just a fabulous experience again in watching human people and what happens when confidence comes and goes. Um, after two years there, um, I went up to Allegheny College, which was a co-ed college in Pennsylvania, a little closer to home, um, and ended up double majoring in psychology and um, arts, the arts. So I had a BA and with a double major. Mm-hmm. 
At what point? At which point, my dad decided he was going back into full time medicine and got a job in Macon, Georgia. Okay, <laughs> Pennsylvania at the time. So. Yeah, little, little different culture, right? Here we go again. Yeah, yeah. There's this thing coming out, so we moved to Macon, Georgia, uh, which I had never experienced anything like that before at the time. This was back in '73. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, I would go and interview for jobs and people would ask me totally inappropriate questions mm-hmm. like you have a boyfriend um, and <laughs> oh why are you, why are you, um, uh, where, where did you grow up and who are your parents and you know, what community did you come from? <laughs> yeah. It was very much unlike anything I had. So through some networking and um, uh, help of, with my parents, of my parents at the time, because I didn't have any, I didn't have a network really. Yeah. Um, I eventually was hired at Delta as a flight attendant. So I thought, okay, this is cool. I'll go see the world and figure out what I want to do over the next couple of years. So that was my first real job. Yeah. Um, and so I went with Delta and uh, went through the training, and that was interesting. That was a journey. Um, and then I was sent to Boston, and we had Delta had just merged with Northeast, like the year before. Yeah. And they didn't change out any of their people. So it was all, I, I came out of Delta training and walked into Northwest Rules and Values. Yeah. yeah. Or North, Northeast, Northeast, I'm sorry, Northeast. Northeast. Yeah. Um, so, but I still was able to make friends there. Again, very different environment, a lot of history, lots of, uh, not unlike the South, lots of what's your family. First time I was ever asked what nationality is your name. And yeah. what nationality are you? And uh, <laughs> I said, well, I'm American. And they said, well, no, 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 no. I mean, where did your folks come from? You yeah. Know? So it was, it, was, it was fascinating. I thought it was really fascinating. You know, I've heard that um, Boston's a pretty kind of, a, at least it maybe it used to be, it was kind of a, a closed city where it's hard to really sort of build a broad network. It's um, pockets of, you know, whether it's um, – you know, different nationalities that have their own areas of the city. I've not lived there, so I don't know. But this, that was what I'd heard from other folks at Delta that had been there, either in reservations or IT or in the part of the flight crew. Um, did you find that experience to be that way? Very true. Very true. And what you, what I think outside uh, outsiders don't understand about me, about Boston is that people don't move from there. They don't think mm. there's any other place but Boston. Yeah. So... People there have their networks and their families. Yeah. And I know like I visited the city. I think it's amazing. And I'm like, wow, to to go to school up here would be just the the best, you know, because I mean, as a a visitor, you don't see all that. But if you're there for six months and you're trying to fit in or trying to expand your network, it could be a little bit different. And that's you experience some of that. Very much so. Very much so. And, you know, remember, I come from the Midwest where everybody welcomed everybody. I mean, they were at your door with casseroles and pies when you moved. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And in Boston, it was like, well. If you're not from Boston, okay, bye. <laughs> but again, but again, different uh, different cultures, you know, difference in people. Uh, oh, I'll never. I'll tell you a quick story. On a fl- so I'm on this flight coming from Boston to maybe Philadelphia. I don't know. So I've got a passenger, and I said, "Sir, can I get you something to drink?" And he said, "Yes, I'll take a Christian." And I looked at him, and I I, I said. I'll be happy to make that, but you're going to have to tell me what's in it because I've never even heard of a Christian. <laughs> uh, 
But it's another example of, you know, people using words that they think the whole world knows and nobody knows. And it was an easy drink to make. It wasn't difficult. It just, I'd never heard it called that before. Yeah. Yeah. That's too funny. So you're right. It was an experience. Um, So so what did you, what did you do to network while you were, how long were you in Boston? 14 years, believe it or not. Okay. So a good, a good while then. So what were some things, what were some things that you did to sort of like, branch out into, you know, the city or to find your, your connection points there? So to be honest, Paul, um, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to do that. Um, I, I made my connections and my network within Delta. Mm-hmm. So the people I flew with, the people in the office that I knew, um, but there wasn't much of an opportunity, honestly, to meet in other places. Since I arrived there, you know, after college, Mm-hmm. So I didn't go to the college haunts. Um, so I was really more dependent on my family within Delta, the people yeah. there that I worked with. Um, and that was good. It was good. I had a couple of really close friends and we would do things together. Um, but mostly I flew cause I was on what they call reserve. So I was on call for five years. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a hard life. Yeah. So for the, my first five years there, it was pretty tough. Um, and then when I eventually bought a house, which I bought up in New Hampshire, uh, I made friends with the neighbor in the neighborhood there and got to know people there. Um, one of which oddly enough worked for Macy's. <laughs> oh, really? That's yeah, funny. that's funny. Um, but I love New Hampshire. I loved the, um, independence of New Hampshire. It was, it was different than Massachusetts. So mm-hmm. there, um, but the networking wasn't easy there. I have to, I have to be honest. So that was really, I was more focused on work. Mm-hmm. on building my uh, financial career and honestly trying to figure out if I wanted to stay with the airlines. Yeah. Particularly with five years on, on call all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's a tough lifestyle for sure. But I do know what you mean about like, you know, I, I started Delta in 87 and there was still a real strong family vibe to that. Yeah. Now I was obviously a headquarters, which is different than some of the outer um, stations that, you know, you experience, but it really was like family. I mean, I, I didn't really feel like I needed to branch out because there was so much, um, we're all in this together and, you know, um, I'll help you, you help me. It's really kind of that customer service focus from what I, what I experienced while I was there. Absolutely. Uh, oh, absolutely. And in every station that I stopped in, you get, you get to know the, the agents that are there you, mm-hmm. you work with them, you talk about their families, you know, so it is, it's, you're right. It's, you build these relationships across the system. So when you go home, you go home to rest pretty much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's what was my life in that time. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So after five years, so you were up there 14 years. So you finally that, were able to hold a line and, and finally, uh, things settled down. Yeah. Yeah. Finally able to hold the line. I was still flying a lot. Um, and um, I went, I, w- I was lead flight attendant on these, uh, L1011, which was new at the time. So that was a whole nother ball game. Now it's my first time actually managing people, right? Even because we had 11 or 12 flight attendants on the airplane at the time. That's a big one. Yeah, it was big. Um, so I did that for a few years and, uh, not too long after that, my manager called me in and she said, uh, the manager of the base called me and she said to me, um, she was asking me about a certain flight attendant. And I said, she said, do you have any problems with her? And I said, no. Mm-mm. And she said, well, what do you do to not have problems with her? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, she's never been a problem. <laughs> I said, I can tell you what I do. I give a briefing. I say, this is what I expect. This is what we are 
you know, we're supposed to do, and this is what we will do. And mm -hmm. if you have any problems or any questions, please don't hesitate. I'll come help any way I can. Um, so then she said to me, would you like to be a supervisor? So that was, now, now I'm at this point of, well, I guess I'm going to stay with the Earl. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> They're recognizing my skills and I'm getting, um, you know, yeah. a good feeling about this. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm managing people. But I, I'll tell you, my first time that I had to address a problem with a flight attendant, Oh my gosh, Paul, I was like sweating. I was yeah. so nervous. It's not easy to do it that first time, but I'll, but I'll tell you, once you do it and you see people grow from it, mm -hmm. then they like you, but this is what I found, because they know you're honest with them. Yeah. That's yeah that means it, a lot. It, yeah. it also means you care too, right? You care yeah. enough to say, look, you know, this is what we need to do to get better. And if you're, if you're open to direction, you're going to get better as well. Right, right. And um, so as hard as it was for me to work up, um, do I, how do I say this in a kind way so that people can hear it, but mm -hmm. know that I'm serious? Um, because, because this is what we're supposed to do, and you're not doing it. And so I've got to address this and give them examples of how to do it, how to change um, and yet not be condescending or mean. I never wanted to do that because I know people don't hear you when you're yes. condescending and mean. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's how I got into the supervisory capacity. And follow, I followed those same, those same rails when I was a supervisor. Because um, I, I didn't feel I was getting the honesty that seemed to be working pretty well with the people I was working with. Yeah. Did they give you any sort of training or was this just, you know, utilizing some of your psychology, you know, skills and just picking up on people and understanding what motivates them? Did you kind of learn it on your own or was there some, some structured training that they offered? No structured training. Mm. So I learned, um, I learned in some, by making mistakes, which yeah. we all do. I made mm. mistakes. Uh, people in Boston in particular, they're very direct. So they call you on them. Um, and, uh, it was, it was kind of a school of hard knocks, but it was okay. It was okay yeah. because it, there was, there was the trust that was built up, I think with me flying with a lot of these people and in a previous position, um, with them. So there was a bridge of connection there that when I talked to them, they knew I had been there and they knew what I was talking about. Yeah. That's and great. Again, and again, I was. I didn't want, I didn't want to be cruel. I just, just I like people too much. So. Well, it's not your style, you know, <laughs> and if you, if you were trying to be cruel, it wouldn't come off as natural anyway. No, so, no, yeah, no, no. It's not, not your so, um, so the funny thing after that was, so I'm in Boston and I'm, you know, um, I've sold my house at this point and I'm trying to decide what am I going to do? Am I going to stay in Boston or what am I going to do? And then I get this call to come on special assignment in Atlanta. So um, I think, oh, okay, my parents are in Macon, I can go to it. So I'll go to Atlanta for six months, put all my stuff in storage. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they, they asked me on special assignment to do a lot of, a lot of very interesting projects. Um, so they'd say, okay, so I don't want to get too out in the weeds. So we're going to start this international flight. So what do we need to do our first quote to quote? Uh, European flight, what do we need to do? So how do we need to set this up? 
So it's a lot of research and then trying to put policies in and procedures in and programs in that'll match competition or even better than that. Um, so I was on special assignment, I think, for two years. And um, uh, then met my husband, who was in Macon with my parents. And that's, that's stories. You know, my, my mother and dad said, okay, we've got a young man we want you to meet. I said, yeah, right. <laughs> that's right. I appreciate the offer, but yeah, I'm good, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> but I did meet him, and um, we married in 85, and we've been happily married at so they were right. Parents yes. are, are right sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's sometimes how well parents know you. And yes. uh, they kind of yes. have that sense. So that's awesome. Great yes. story. So that was cool. Um, but then um, I think what kept moving me along, because from that point I kept getting promoted within in-flight. And then, as you said, to reservation sales, Delta Express, airport customer service, and then back to um, in-flight service at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, it was because I was good at talking to people and being honest. I was good at problem solving. And the way I approached problem solving, Paul, um, is, you know, it's, I, I always feel that you need cross-function. You need people on the front line. You need people at every level of the organization to look at a problem and give solutions. And they're not always going to be all right. But they're going to come up with the best. Mm-hmm. solution in the end as a group so i'll give you one example um we were doing delta express and here was our problem we had 12 aircraft that were delta aircraft two cabins first in business and uh, coach uh and overnight they were flying through the thanksgiving holiday but overnight they had to be put into the one class configuration and launched as delta express never done it before every airplane had taken three days in the hangar to convert like that. Mm-hmm. So I brought in representatives from airport customer service, from maintenance, all the different areas that had been involved in converting an aircraft and said, okay, guys, here's your, here's the problem. Can we do it? And if so, how do we do it? And so they went to work and in one day had a plan where we could do it. And so we set up and we did it and we did it successfully. So that's what I mean by problem solving. It's yeah. not, you know, oh, Paul, you're the smartest person in the world, so go solve this. It's let's get a lot of different voices in here and yeah. see who at, what, what comes together. That is really, really key because you, there are some people who think, okay, I don't need anybody else or it's on me and I take all the pressure to do it. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, when you think about a customer problem, you know, your customers are made up amongst a lot of diversity and so why not have the people solving the problem be just as diverse which could be different areas of the company you know different you know um, races and all sorts of you know different people weighing in because that gives you a better sense of what your customer is going to need right absolutely and the other thing it does not only is it the best solution from the customer's perspective it gives you the buy-in because you've got people now who have been involved in building something and if you build it you want to make it work it's not your solution it's our solution it's right our solution yeah it makes that's a lot of exactly sense right um so that's i really believe that was key to all of the steps that i took i was so fortunate because uh, not many people within delta were able to switch departments like like i did um and i i, I felt like it was a real honor and a real opportunity for me to show that there is another way besides the command and control 
mm-hmm. way that airlines are famous for. Yeah. Um, and with good reason, with good reason. But yeah. there were other ways to solve problems that were effective as well. It's kind of a newer, you know, leadership um, behavior that was you kind of ahead of your time because I know a lot's talked about that now. And certainly, you know, I'm in the software development industry yes. and so small teams, you know, collaboration, you know, transparency and honesty. But you're right. You know, if, if something's going on in a, in a cockpit and it's emergency, you can't really collaborate. You got to have yeah. process and structure and this is how it goes. And yeah, so it definitely has, you know, roots in military and I totally understand all that. But I think you were really smart and I think thinking through the human behavior of that. So that was, was it just um, you were willing to try something new and that's kind of, because that wasn't always the case at Delta. So I think you were pretty, pretty remarkable to not only come up with that, but also achieve success with that. Well, it, and it's, it's such a good question because there were times when I, when the company said to me, we want you to go over here. And I said, well, I'm not sure I want to do that. And they would say, oh, 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 oh excuse me. Uh, no, we've never said you had a choice. <laughs> that's right so oh oh okay yeah paula let me rephrase this yeah here's where yeah. you're going next yeah oh that sounds like a great opportunity <laughs> so there was a mix of you know you we want you to go here and and then also a mix of me saying okay i want to go delta express is an example of the first time i really spoke up and said i want to go do that i want to learn how to build an airline yeah well, I think you had all the components too. You've seen at various levels how things worked, you know, in, in a larger airline, but also just how they all fit together. Yeah. And I wanted to learn the strategy of that. I wanted to understand more so at a, at a more granular level how do you do this? Marketing operations, uh, customer service, how do you do all this and put this together in a new way? Um, because of the challenge at the time, you might remember, is Southwest was kind of eating Delta's lunch in Florida. Yes. Yep. Um, and 30% of our revenues came out of Florida at the time. So, you know, when, you, when I would talk to people and say, um, what would you do with Delta? What if Delta had, uh, was like Southwest? And they said, oh, no, no, no. Passengers would say, no, 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 we don't want another Southwest. We want Delta, but we want a... Um, less expensive version of Delta, but we want Delta. So yeah. there's a strategic problem, right? So how do you how do you make it Delta with Southwest fares? <laughs> yeah. So that was then that was fascinating to me to try to solve again solving that problem using again passenger input, employee input, because it was all the employees wrapping around the employees and and saying. Okay, here's what we want to do. How do we do it? Okay, we can't use as many products on the airplane. So you can't, flight attendants, you can't order a case of Coke. But if you tell me that you have 36 Cokes and that's not enough for your run, then tell me what you want to take off and we'll put more Cokes on. So it was a very different way of thinking from what we had grown up with. Yeah. Were there, um, were there some surprises that, you know, you thought going in, okay, this is how I, I see it working out. And then after you did, you know, some of the research and talked to, you know, employees as well as passengers, were there some things that we wound up doing differently that you didn't expect? You, you know, I think that the most surprising thing to me was how quickly the, pe- the, the people we were working with, the pilots, the flight attendants, the um, 
on ground, customer service employees, maintenance, how quickly they were willing to try new things. So it became almost um, a bed for innovation. Hmm. So the uh, taxing in with one engine that we see all airlines doing today, that, yeah. that came to Delta from Delta Express. That was a, that was a pilot's suggestion on how to save fuel. Um, we came up, yeah, we came up with a dance on how to turn the airplane in 20 minutes. Uh, all the on-ground guys did that, guys and women. And then also the fuel, the fueling was our hardest thing because it took 20 minutes to fuel the aircraft. So you can't, you can't really hurry fueling, but you can work all around that 20 minute period. Yeah. So it's Yeah, that's a fascinating because I think there was probably a lot of this, we've got standards and best practices and this is how we've always done it, right? And how many times do you think pilots or even flight attendants have talked about the millions of times that people have taxied in and out of, you know, either the gate to the runways and said, you know, why are we running all four engines? You know, why don't we shut some of these down, right? Exactly. But, yeah. Exactly, Paul. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing we, one of the things we tested that did not go well was um, we put the big bottles of soft drinks on the um, airplanes. And at the time, they weren't lined the way they are today. Yeah. So the first time I applied it and opened it, it just exploded all over the airplane. <laughs> so, you know, immediately she called me when, we, when she landed. She said, okay, so that doesn't work. <laughs> but, you know, it was the joy of trying stuff and saying, nah, that doesn't work. Let's try something else. It was that openness yeah. that, that was being released and people were just loving that they could have some voice in and, you know, probably things that, as you said, they've wanted to talk about their whole lives. <laughs> and this, this gave them that outlet and that opportunity. And I, I believe, awesome. you know, the customer service, the customer satisfaction was 95%. Um, the employee satisfaction was 98%. Uh, it was just, it was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity and a wonderful experience. And just for context, what's a normal customer sat rating? Well, at the time, Delta was in the mid 80s. Yeah. So, so to add 10 or 15 points on, yes. you know, Delta always had pretty good customer ratings compared to some of the other airlines, excellent. right? Yeah. Yes, excellent ratings. So, uh, but we had just come through, this was uh, 96, so we'd just come through a pretty tough time in the economy, mm -hmm. and um, we were trying as an airline to kind of re rewrite ourselves or become more competitive within the industry, which is why we were launching an airline within an airline. At yeah, yeah. So not only did it reinvigorate us as a company, it, re it reinvigorated our people, too because it gave them something new to work on um, and make even better than what we've done before. So all that was great. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, after the, the um, Delta Express launched, um, did you, were you doing other things with the company or tell me what happens after the launch? Well, uh, we were growing. Delta yep. Express uh, grew tremendously after that. Um, for a couple of years, 98, uh, yeah, for un until about 99, at which point, my opinion, uh, we needed to be uh, re-upping the airplane. We were using 737s at the time. We need, really needed to go to a 727 or, or more updated aircraft type. Um, and the company at the time had, um, had a lot of turnover in the senior exec ranks, the new CEO, 
uh, a new chief operating officer, new chief marketing officer, and the economy was coming back strong. And suddenly these new folks were saying, why do we have this nonstop service to Florida from key cities and charge less than we do on connection service on the main line? So because of the change in the economy, there was not the drive to keep the unit any longer, to keep gotcha. Delta Express any yeah. longer. Yeah. Um, which was, which was uh, I'll tell you, it was probably the right thing from an economy and business standpoint, uh, but it broke the hearts of the people that were involved in Delta Express because the buy-in and the ownership was so strong at the time. So uh, I, left, I left there. I was offered a job out in Salt Lake City as vice president of 57 airport operations. So um, I left Delta Express. It was turned over to somebody else, and then it eventually was disbanded. Um, and so in the meantime, I went out to Salt Lake. Uh, again, a very different culture from what I had lived. Yes, it is. <laughs> from any other place I had lived. All right. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, uh, but I really loved it out there. I loved the mountains. I loved the open skies. The people were hardworking, uh, generally eth very ethical people. Not to say that other parts weren't like that, but they were very hardworking people. Yes. And um, airport customer service was a whole different environment because it was very command and control. It had been a Western station, and we had merged with Western in the 80s. And not a whole lot had had changed, although it was following Delta practices and procedures. Um, but this 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 position was a new concept too. It was the first time we had put officers out in the field for airport customer service and over a region. So it had been all run from the GO from the general offices before. So the yeah. concept was new. So we were developing it kind of as we went. Um, but that was that was fascinating too. Now. Here's where that whole thing of bringing people in and asking questions to solve problems all, all really worked well for me because I had never really worked in airport customer service other than what I did with Express, Delta Express. Yeah. Um, so this really got me deep into how do, those air, how do those things work. And then in the midst, two years into it, one year into it was 9-11. So... Wow. Yeah. That's when everything in the airports changed because of 9-11 and the security options. We had been, I don't know if you remember at the time, Paul, but before 9-11, we were like zipping through security and zipping to the airplanes and you hardly ever stopped. Yes. Yep. But this changed everything. Um, so we had to redo all those airports. There are the lobbies. We had to focus our people on um, behaving differently. So how do, you, how do you get something like a kiosk, which is, you know, so everyday to us today. But back then, there were no kiosks in airport lobbies, except maybe Alaskan Airlines. It was, it was you go to the ticket counter. Yeah. So how do you get people to use a kiosk who've never used a kiosk before? Um, so we built processes and programs around that, had people out there inviting people to use the kiosk, showing them how easy it was and how fast it was and, um, so again, it was that um, adoption of new technology, of new ways of working, and building back the air the airplanes from pretty much empty after. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. So that was kind of, um, you know, adjusting to um, certain environmental situations, right? That you couldn't exactly. expect, couldn't control, but exactly. you've got to figure out now how, how's this going to work and what's, what's the best path to get customers back and, and uh, streamline and, you know, have, have them still have a pleasant experience. Cause you're right. I mean, before nine 11, I tell my kids this too, you know, I'm like, you know, as an employee, we could, you know, park at the parking lot, you get on a van and they drop you off right under, you know, the A spot at A18 and you walk in and you come up the door and you're right there. And I mean, it was like just completely different than the experiences I've had as, you know, traveling as a business person much later. Um, And and they just, they can't even fathom that that's how it was. I'm like, yeah, it was a pretty sweet deal, but yeah, it was, uh, it changed a lot in 9-11 and from that point forward. It did. It did. The other thing that was interesting uh, that I learned along the way was, you know, now not only am I, are my constituents, passengers, and employees, but now I've got the government, the TSAs. Yeah. And with 57 airports, I had like eight different TSAs, different regions of the country, and they all had their own ideas about how they were going to do it. So now we had to work with them and figure out something that, you know, got them what they needed, but also got us what we needed to make our customers and our employees feel comfortable. Um, so that took a while. <laughs> there yeah. were some TSA agents who just had it. They knew it, they got it, they understood it, and others who, who you could see were nervous just being in the job. <laughs> so. did Because um, I, I expect that there's high turnover at TSA. Um, so did that affect how you were able to roll out new ideas and new processes? Um, no, not so much, because um, the people I was dealing with were the what do I say, the bosses of the airport regions. So, for example, in California, they had um, a TSA director over California, and he was over all of the airports in California and all of the ports in California. Mm-hmm. So I would deal with him for anything California. You go up to Seattle and um, Portland, Washington, and Oregon, they had a completely different TSA director. Gotcha. And they had different ideas. Okay. Um, so the, the, the TSA people um, were new. They were scared, too. All, everybody was scared, right? Yeah. Uh, and you had these, um, these ages, these police actually walking around with these huge guns, which is not conducive to relaxation in an airport. <laughs> and, you're, yeah, you're not used to seeing that in the U.S. either, no, right? No, no, no. And, you know, again, command and control. It's always whenever you get any kind of military involved, it's command and control automatically. So just talking to them about how, wait, 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 you can have safety and service. They can reside with each other. You don't have to scare people to death. (laughs) Let's figure out how to work this out. (laughs) Yeah. So that that was the third element, I think, of what I learned in that area. Um, and, and then we had um, the uh, 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake. So yes, you were the, out there for that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that was, that was really interesting because um, Salt Lake before that time had been um, a connecting hub, which means you flew into Salt Lake as a passenger and then you connected and went to Seattle or you went to um, Montes- Billings, Montana. Or you went someplace else. Mm-hmm. Um, there was very little what we call originating and um, uh, destination traffic into Salt Lake. Well, that all changed with the Olympics. So all of a sudden, we became a destination airport for those two weeks of the Olympics. Um, And we weren't set up that way. So we had to figure out how do we handle all of this luggage 
that's coming in, make it easy for people visiting Salt Lake to get to their hotels and get their luggage back to the airport and us handle that all safely according to TSA rules um, and make it a safe and comfortable environment. So we had to change a lot of our day-to-day programs and processes within the airport um, to do all that, which we did. People yeah. loved it. We did, we did fine until um, the, very, the very last day, the ending of, the, of um, the Olympics in Salt Lake, somebody ran through TSA. So they'd shut it all down. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it was not, not a good situation. And there were lots of fingers pointing at that point. But um, up to that point, it had been really good. So I think the city was very supportive. They helped us. Um, the government was supportive. They helped us. And of course, Delta, the airline, the people there were always very supportive of making this the best experience people had had since it was a little over a year after 9-11. Yeah. The first big gathering to come together. I'm sure it was heightened tension, you know, leading into it, right? I mean, it's even, you know, before 9-11, I know there was all questions they heard in Atlanta about security and what was going to happen with transportation and all that. But yeah, that's to talk about it a year afterwards, because it was a very different world by then. Oh, yeah. And there was a lot of talk of not even doing it. Yeah, owning it because of the fear, uh, but but it was good. I was glad we did it because I think it was a good lesson to all of us that you can overcome difficulty and you can make people com- comfortable and you can change to support something that was good for all the country, in my opinion, for the whole world to see yeah. that we, we can carry on. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, and it turned out really good. Yeah, yeah. So that was good. So um. I think in 2004 was about the time I came back to Atlanta um, as senior vice president of InFlight. And that, uh, that was an invitation. Um, so, so that was great. I'd kind of missed being in Atlanta, kind of not missed being in Atlanta since I had my whole own little kingdom out there, which was doing great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I came back to Atlanta and took over in flight, and within a year we were in um, bankruptcy. Yeah. So there's the next, you know, the next step. And wow, how do I keep people engaged? And how do I cut cut all sixty million dollars from my budget? And you know, how do I do all this and still make the service and the product uh, something that people want to continue to experience? Yeah, that's a tough equation to solve. Yeah. It, it was, but you know, I'll tell you, we, um, we put together, and this was not my idea, it was somebody else's, the Velvet Rope Tour. This was the best thing. Um, and we started pulling, it was mandatory for all flight attendants, said, okay, let's, let's come in and let's talk about what's happened here, why it happened, and what we need to do to become successful in the future. I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's just brilliant. So we did it. We had some fun along the way, and we did some teaching about how we're going to lighten up on our announcements. We're not going to make them so, you know, serious, but we're going to be serious in our actions. Um, And we're going to do some other things, too. So that, I think, was really great. It gave flight attendants an opportunity to ask a lot of questions because they're the ones that spend all the time with the customer nowadays. Right, yeah. The customers are saying, why did you take the lettuce off this plate? You know, why would you do this? Why would you do that? So... It really gave the flight attendants um, a great opportunity to understand the why 
and what the path forward. Um, and I think that was great. And then at the end, I said, do you think we could get to a point where we reduce complaints this year, even though we're in bankruptcy, that we made an effort to reduce complaints by 50%. Uh, they left the room, and that year in bankruptcy, they reduced passenger complaints by 50%. That's amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. I was, I was just, it still gives me shivers, right? <laughs> <laughs> what an accomplishment. Because well, that's not easy to do. It's, no, no. But I think it was, again, including people in the yeah and help giving them the understanding in the background so that they're not making it up themselves because that's what we as humans do. Mm -hmm. The lack of information, we just go make it up. Um, so I think that was, that was key. And it worked so well, Paul, that then, then they wanted us to do it for airport customer service and res sales. And, and of course, we did all that, which was great. But it's that ownership, right? If you've got buy-in, um, then people aren't, aren't deferring things and saying, it's not my job, it's not my problem. If something happens, I take pride in this. I, I helped sort of create this goal. Let's, let's work together to solve it. That's, That's it's, right. yeah, it's great. And I think, you know, going back to our early comments about it being a family, mm -hmm. after we, when we declared bankruptcy, I'd fly to tenants crying. Yeah. And what, what did we do? How did we fail? So it was so important to come back to them and say, it was not you. This is what it was. This is what we as a company did, and this is what we as a company need to do going forward to be successful. I yeah, think and I, that was powerful. Yeah, and I think just for the for the younger listeners, you know, the spirit of Delta it wasn't just an airplane. I mean, it was really embodied a lot of the employees, and a lot of people forget that this was an airplane that seven fifty seven that everybody pitched in to buy for the company. Yes, you know? and. Yes. That was, that was, I think it was telling for the culture and it was really unique. And, you know, you fast forward, what was it, 15 years? I, I can't remember when they actually bought that plane. It was 85? 85, I think, yeah. Something like that, right? Yes. So you fast forward almost 20 years later and, you know, a, a bankruptcy is still affecting people in a way that's almost like family. So it's, uh, yeah, a very special place. It was a very special place. And I think... Um, the other thing in, as you said, once you, get, once you have the buy-in and you lay out, here's the goal, this is what we need to do, I mean, people will take the mountain. It's yeah. just, you, you just release them and they take the mountain. And, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, let's be clear, let's share all information, let's, let's make sure that people understand where we are and where we need to be and then give them the tools to help us get there. Well put. That's, I mean, that's, it's magical leadership right there. Well, it's, it, I, I'm surprised that, <clears throat> that it's not more understood in business. I, re I really am. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> um, I, I was fortunate enough that it worked. It worked in every place I went in Delta. Now, I don't know if it would work in every business. I, I don't know that. Um, but I think that every, every place where I led a large group of people, and let them teach me as well as uh, um, them learning from me. It was always uh, a very productive and very successful journey together. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's an important lesson because I think a lot of, you know, especially if you're successful going down a path one way, mm -hmm. um, it's really hard to open your mind up to say, okay, I'm going to try something different because this has always worked. But as you start to deal with, you know, younger employees, 
they're not responding as well to that. And so that legacy of, you know, we'll call it command and control because I've seen the, like the last three or four companies I've worked at, we, we struggled with that culture. Yes. And people would say the right things, but under stress, you go back to what's comfortable, what's natural for you, what's worked for you. And, you know, change is hard. Culture change is really tough to transform. And um, if you're able to do it, you will start to see the benefits, of, you know, down to the team and the individual level to make that change. It's really, uh, it's really pretty remarkable. And so I think to recruit younger people into an organization, you really have to embody that, that ability to change. You do. You do. And I think that um, they're, what I find with young people today is they're very curious. They want to learn. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there's a little bit of arrogance in there. <laughs> yes. Um, which, which, is, which is okay because I, you know, I fully bow to the younger people who understand technology much more than I do. I want to learn it from them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think the best combination is, again, going back to, well, you have technology. I've got experience. So let's figure out a way to make it even better for a company. Yeah. You know, by bringing those, all of that, all of that knowledge together rather than trying to fight each other. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, there is technology changes so rapidly so that, you know, um, I know when I got started in, in the technology field, I mean, we were dealing with mainframes and 3725s and channel attached controllers. I mean, none of that stuff is worth anything now, but the human factor hasn't changed. And I think that's where, you know, you come out of school and you were talking before about, you know, having to manage people that were probably older than you, that knew more than you, but you were responsible for them and you had to find a way to connect, you know? And I think for young people coming out of college, they have a lot of technical skills, but there's a lot that they still need to learn about real world examples and human interaction and dealing with some of those generational things or dealing with customers they haven't had to do, deal with much before. So yeah, I think the, the experience is uh, you're always learning and you're always growing. And technology can change as well. So what, what it, my, my son's 24, what he knows now, 10 years from now, he's, he's got to be relearning as well. So it's, You're right. yeah. So. We all learn as we go. And I think that, you know, biggest lesson in my life is, you know, how do you be mentors to each other? Yes. So, because um, I want to be mentored too. I want to understand more about, you know, what the world's going to look like in 10 years. I want to understand how I can help young people grow into that and be successful in that. Well, you know? let's, yeah. So let's talk about that. So when you, you, you leave Delta yeah. and um, obviously had a history of success and lots of really good things you've accomplished. Um, what's next for you? How do you figure out how to sort of pivot and, and what you're learning next? It's a great question. Great question because it was a surprise of my life. Yeah. <laughs> So I came out of um, Delta, loving Delta, and mm -hmm. really not wanting to go to another airline. That was not what I wanted to do, but I wanted to continue to be productive, and I wanted to continue to work for a while. So I wanted to go explore other things. Well, lo and behold, everybody wanted to classify me as an airline person, yeah. period. Yeah. <laughs> period, exclamation point. Um, so if I would talk to an organization that had hotels, well, no, you don't know anything about hotels. <laughs> okay, you've got safety, you've got customers, you've got digital systems, you've got marketing. What else am I supposed to know? Yeah, it's <laughs> I right. had dining, you know, I had 
catering services. What what else? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, but what I found is, you know, you can't approach it that way. This is what this is a this is a big learning on my part. Is I had to figure out, well, what do I want to go do? You know, um, what is it that I bring, and what do I want to do? And then I'm going to network around, and I'm going to figure out what these companies do. Because frankly, I didn't have a network. Big, and this is a big stop exclamation point. Make sure you have a network that you can reach out to. Um, unfortunately, all my time was in dealing with the um, bankruptcy and all of the meetings around that my last couple of years there. So I didn't have a network in Atlanta. And that was a huge mistake. So when I got out, I had to build it. Yeah. I had to figure out what I wanted to do. I had to define that myself. And then I had to build a brand around that. And then I had to go out and network and figure out what companies did. And then then brand myself according to what I could bring to that company. That's smart. Yeah, but it took time. <laughs> yeah, but it's, yeah, because I, I think it's, you know, you're sort of trying to figure out your way and yeah. you're, you're having to like prove that I'm not just an airline person or exactly. you know, I want to go into work in, in different industries. So, yeah, that's. And, but you, and you have to almost reframe yourself completely. Cause so, so this is where the resume you know, the resume is a hard thing to deal with. LinkedIn is easier to deal with. Um, but you really want to figure out, at this, at this point in my career, I wanted to do something that I was passionate about, which I knew that had something to do with people, because I loved mm -hmm. working with people, um, that I loved kind of challenging questions and challenging problems, natty problems. Um, and um, other than that, I really didn't know what it was. So I thought, hmm, okay. So where I landed actually was through a networking contact was at North Highland as a consultant, mm -hmm. which helped me build and understand consulting. So I could write a, I could write a proposal. I could do a lot of things that went along with what I eventually wanted to do, which um, I came to understand was coaching. Um, but North Highland was the bridge that gave me the skills that I needed to do coaching. That makes sense. And some of that is, as you're developing your plan forward, and everybody should have a plan B always in your career, um, network, figure out what it is, get an idea of what it is, what do you need to get to that plan B, and start finding ways to develop those skills, whether they're with your current job or out doing volunteer work in the community. Build those skills. Because that way, as you go to the next position, You've got that experience under your belt and you can give real life examples of what you've done in that area. Um, Great advice. Always building bridges to the plan B, the plan B. Um, and that's really what I did. Um, and so I'm actually, I've got chapter two, I'm executive director there, which is helps people kind of figure all that out. And I've also got um, Corbin executive coaching, which is a coaching where I just help people in um, if they're having problems in a certain area. And then I do a lot of volunteer work. I do volunteer coaching through Path Builders. Um, I'm with an organization called CEO NetWaivers that help businesses who reach an inflection point. All of a sudden, it doesn't, their business doesn't work anymore. <laughs> yeah. We help them through those hurdles. Um, it's all free of charge to them. So um, everything that I'm doing right now is using all the experiences and the skills 
that I've lived through my life. Yeah. And things that I love to do to help people. Yeah, it's sort of like, um, you know, it's, it's a collection of all the things you've already accomplished, but it's still giving you um, a taste of something new and yes. really sort of tapping into your, probably your innate passion. Of, like you said, you've, you've mentioned about helping people and, you know, really connecting with people, um, you know, the networking piece, it sounds like you, you didn't focus on it, but mm-hmm. you were pretty gifted at doing it. And now that you've seen the, the power of that. So um, yes. really helpful. And I've, I've learned that as well through, you know, just, I think even in college, I felt like, okay, um, I'm struggling. I just need to buckle down and do more individually and not realizing, look, it's okay to ask for help. And as I got through my career, I've changed jobs and I've, I've gone to places where I've, I've wanted to learn something new or had opportunities, but that network was always important. When you start in, you know, you don't know everything. And if you're, I've been, been in new industries and I've had to ask questions and really start to build that network internally and trying to find out things. And it's, um, it is really powerful and it can also open doors that you never knew existed. Right. Absolutely. No question, Paul. And I think that that the key to networking is not, not just to get a LinkedIn, but the key is to, to really sit down with somebody and get to know them and, and then also get to know what they're doing. So if you're working for, I'm going to make this up Equifax and you know, you're meeting people at Equifax around you, you know, what are they doing? What do they like about their job? What are the challenges in that area? You know, you're learning because remember, it's up to each of us to make sure it's the right move for us too. Yep. That's what I tell all everybody that I coach. I said, you're not just interviewing with them. You are interviewing to see if this is a place you want to go. What's yes. the culture like? Yeah. If you're coming out of a bad culture, you certainly don't want to go to a company that's got that same type of culture. You better find that out before you even start asking if there are any jobs there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're right. Is it's it is, you know, when you go through interviews, it is it's a it's a two-way door to put it in Amazon terms. You have to figure out, you know, is it going to am I going to work for them, but are they also going to work for me? Is it going to exactly. be the right fit, you know? Yes. I don't want to make a decision and then regret it. Um you know, I think in the, you know, when I was younger, it was just about money, you know, come out, get a job, whatever the yes. whatever highest paying job is, that's what it took. And yep. I think now there are, there's different opportunities, I think that you can have. And I think, you know, the, this, the, uh, the startup culture, there's obviously a lot more to it. I've seen, you know, two of my kids came out of Georgia Tech and you've seen a lot of these adventure programs and there's venture capitalists. And there's a lot of things that as a young person, you have opportunities to do that, you know, 30 years ago really didn't have the same uh, opportunities. But even with that, you still have to figure out what's the culture going to be in my startup. Or if I'm going to work with three other people, I better get along with them and let's make sure that we've got a healthy working relationship, you know? So that's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think the other, the other thing I would add to that is, you know, when you're young and you're coming out of school, you're obviously interested in getting that job um, and figuring out what is it like What's, what is this culture once you're, because it's usually once you're in there at this point, you're, it's you're in your life, is you're exploring. Mm-hmm. So you're learning and you're exploring and you need a certain amount of money, you know, to do that. Um, as you move into your 40s, you really should be at your peak, 40s and 50s, your peak earning years financially. Yeah. Um, and once you get past that, it's about your passion, your skills, and your experience. 
what you really want to do based on the skills and the wisdom and what you've learned earlier on in your career. Um, so there are different stages in, in your career life. And I want people to understand that just because you take a job doesn't mean you're there the rest of your life, as you, Paul, have done. You've mm -hmm. done a wonderful job of, you know, going into other companies and organizations and, and been successful for various reasons. Um, but I think it's important for people not, not to say, oh, I'm here because this is all I can do. That's yeah. not true. <laughs> yes, that's true. And, and if, you're, if you are saying that, it's not going to make you happy. No. Yep. Oh, you're going to be miserable. Yep, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, final question for you, then I'll let you go. This has been an awesome conversation. Yeah, I've loved it. I've loved it. Thank you. <laughs> but it, and you touched on this a little bit, but if you could go back in time, what advice would you give yourself? Well, I think one of the things, I'll say this from a woman's perspective, is you know when I came out of school, the, the only opportunities for women really were nurses or secretaries, um, teachers. We were on the brink of women coming into the workplace and really be take, being thought of for different opportunities. Um, so when I came in, I didn't, I didn't have a clear idea of what I wanted to do. Um, now, that served me fine throughout my career because I was lucky enough to get with a good, good organization and was able to exercise some of my values and beliefs and thinking strategies and, and um, learnings through school. Um, but I would, say, I would say that my earlier self, I wasn't as confident as I should have been. I could have been more confident as an individual. I could have been more planful instead of just kind of ending up in positions at times of really thinking through what part of this organization do you really want to, you know, go towards or thrive in or learn from? Um, is this an organization I want to stay with or is, it something, is there something else that I could do outside of this organization? I think young people today have much more opportunity to think that way. Mm -hmm. than perhaps I felt that I had at the time. So that's what I would say to them. Be curious. If you get bored, find something else to do. And it doesn't have to be leaving the job if you can't afford to. It can be go out, going out in your, and doing volunteer work somehow with small business or with coaching or with mentoring somebody in an area that's completely different from what you're doing. Um, so be curious, stay curious, and explore beyond your organization and your own little world because there's so much out there. Um, and if you don't explore and you don't network and you don't learn, then you're not going to know that. So you're going to feel stuck. Yeah. Yeah. That's, those are, those are powerful lessons right there. I think that's, um, that's really critical and, and you're right. I think, you know, you, your career spans, you know, in the earlier stages of your career, there wasn't a lot of options, you know, mm -hmm. and I think there are certainly more options now for females, um, still not where it needs to be, obviously, but I think it's, it's certainly getting better. And, um, yes. and I think, you know, being curious and, and you mentioned about being confident, you know, sometimes that is um, to be too confident. I think when you were first starting out, I think would have been really tough, you know, especially, especially in Boston, right? <laughs> but, um, but I think it's, it's, it's getting better now. And I think, you know, just in general, I think kids are coming out and they're, they are, they have more worldly, you know, and I think that's, that's a, that's certainly something that you've seen change as well. So, um, 
Yes. Yes. Great, yeah. great advice. Well, and, and there's great social media now. We didn't have that. Um, you know, mm -hmm. there's there's so many ways to connect now, and um, just make sure they're they're heartful connections, right? Make sure yeah. you know where your where your heartful network and your supportive network is, um, and you'll be fine. Yeah, that's 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 critical. Um, yeah, I think the the network is. I, I can't reinforce that enough, and I think you've done a great job to demonstrate how well that works in your career too. So. Paulette, well, I've, I've kept you long enough, but thank you so much for sharing your, your experiences, uh, some of the good stories, and certainly the valuable life lessons that you've picked up over your career. So um, any final thoughts? Just thank you. Thank you for um, doing this and sharing these stories with people who hopefully can learn and use them in their best way. Um, so thank you for doing this, Paul. I really appreciate it. And I had such great fun talking with you. Always. We always have a good time reminiscing and talking about new ideas as well. So Yeah, for sure. All right, Paula. Well, thanks so much. And uh, we'll have to have you back and uh, we'll, we'll dig into maybe some, uh, some newer technologies and some social media stuff that we've, we've picked up. That would be fun. Let's do it. That's okay, awesome. Paul. All right. Thank okay. you. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.